Welcome back to Project A Plus. Yeah, it's, it's been quite an absence, uh, and uh, you know the last um, ten or so releases that we've done have been reduced garbage versions of the show, and now it's time to get back to the full garbage version of the show. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I'm uh, the acclaimed scholar Hunter, and you are. Um. Ex sandwich factory worker Hugh. Hmm. Well, you're still technically uh, employed there, right? I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> so down to zero hours. Yeah, but that doesn't count as being an ex employee yet. Yeah. Welcome to series seven of Project A Plus. We apologize for series six <laughs> and series five. So Hugh, uh, obviously us returning to talking about a film that we both watched, a new film that we both watched, must mark some sort of special occasion, right? It must. What film could be so extraordinary that it broke our vow of silence and caused us to return to our old ways? What film indeed, what film could have us both shittering on such an edge that we felt an inexplicable and uncontrollable urge to talk about it at length for possibly over an hour? What film, you? What film? Is it? Could it be a, a Netflix original uh, Christmas-themed romantic comedy? Or a Netflix original <laughs> bland-themed uh, science fiction film? <laughs> or uh, this is pretty much the two, like, themes of stuff that we covered, so. Mm-hmm. Well, it is definitely a Netflix original film. That's true. It is set, I think, during some holiday season. Uh, I don't Maybe. I don't, I, no, I don't think so. Maybe not? Okay. They didn't make reference to it at all. It's, it's definitely sort of set during the winter time, but I didn't get holiday from anything. So it's a Netflix original, and it is by a uh, director who has something of a decent reputation prior to uh, embarking on this Netflix endeavor. And I would say including this Netflix endeavor. Mm, apparently so. I mean... Not, not from us, necessarily, but from the general critical population. I have not read any specific uh, criticism of this film, but I am aware that it has had positive reviews. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean more than... I mean, I haven't really read any reviews of it either, to be honest, but I feel the tenor of the stuff I've seen tweet, Twitter in about and also various scores on such garbage sites as Rat and Tomatoes and Metacritic have leaned... Or it's consensus being that this is a good film. And what film is it, you ask? I hear you hear you screaming at the headset as you're driving down the highway. Because obviously all of our listeners are uh, long-haul truckers. <laughs> if if mm-hmm. uh, our download numbers are anything to be believed. Why, of course, it is Charlie Kaufman's somewhat recently released... Uh, I think you can call this an opus. What do you think? <laughs> I think we can go with a film. That's true. I mean, even though it probably it wasn't shot on film. No. So you can call it, call it a video. <laughs> a motion picture, if you will. Charlie Kaufman's uh, latest video. I'm thinking <laughs> of ending things. Charlie Kaufman's latest Jack tape. <laughs> um, no, he hasn't opened up OnlyFans, at least not yet. Uh, anyway, the movie is called uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Mm-hmm. Which is what I'm sure our listeners uh, thought when they pushed play on this episode. And then they hit the end button on their phone and then deleted the podcast. 
I think it's more extreme than that. I think the things they're thinking of ending after listening to any amount of our podcast are our lives and their families' lives and every, everything they ever care about. Um, all right, Hugh. But uh, that that being said, our our future deaths hanging over us. Uh, what is I'm thinking of ending things, and why did we watch it? Um, aren't we supposed to ask each other how we are? Um, no. Okay. Thinking of Ending Things uh, is indeed a film written and directed by Charlie Kaufman for Netflix. Uh, it's based on a novel by Ian Reid of the same name. Mm. <laughs> yeah, the same name meaning Ian Reid, right? Yep. <laughs> the novel is called Ian Reid <laughs> by Ian Reid. Yeah, yeah. And Kaufman wisely decided to retitle it, I'm thinking of anything. Mm, but uh, annoyingly decided to, I mean, I don't know if this was his doing, but decided to stylize the title, at least annoyed in my point of view, by taking all the capitals out. Did he? I mean, I couldn't. I could barely read the text on the screen because it was so small. Uh, at least on the poster and stuff, it's all uh, lowercase. Yeah, okay. Which I, th- I think is always annoying, but... You know, it has no bearing on the film itself. I'm thinking of ending things. What's the what's the plot? What happens in it? So there's a young woman uh, who is assigned a variety of names over the course of the film. Um, Played by Jesse Buckley. Yes. Uh, and let's just call her Lucy because it's the first one that, that is given to her. Okay. Um, so you got Lucy and then we get, uh, what, what the fuck is his name? Frank? Jake. <laughs> Jake. Uh, he's played by another Jesse, but uh, unlike Buckley, uh, his last name is Plibbins. That's right. Um, and they are some sort of uh, couple. They haven't been dating for a particularly long amount of time. It seems like uh, six weeks is the uh, <laughs> uh, estimate that the young woman comes to over the course of one of her brain monologues that she gives. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, they are headed in the middle of winter to visit the farm that uh, uh, Jake grew up on and have dinner with his parents, who are played by Tony Collette and uh, David Thwellis. Or David Thulis? What is it? Thulis, that's it. It's spelt Thulis, whatever it is. And yes, it didn't irritate me that uh, only one of the <laughs> actors in this movie was American. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, perhaps, perhaps. Um, so, uh, yeah, they do that. Uh, and there's all sorts of ominous signs and things that happen on this car journey. And then when they get to the house, it seems to be some sort of bizarre uh, horror show to some degree. Things are not what they seem. Uh, time seems to be out of joint to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then sort of, you know, mysterious... Uh, Things start to happen, and everything is everything what it seems to be, Hugh? What's going on? Uh, I'm not sure if you specified, but um, Lucy, 
as the title suggests, is indeed thinking of ending things with Jake. Mm. Yeah. From the very get-go. So it's kind of a weird situation already that she's having to drive out to this remote farmhouse to meet his parents. Mm. And, yeah, that's all compounded by the weird vibes uh, his parents give off and that he gives off and that uh, time and space seem to give off as well. Hmm. There's still lots of weird vibes everywhere. As is sort of Kaufman's uh, deal, you know. It's his jam. And I guess we should say that uh, intercut with this story is a sort of um, unexplained side narrative of this older janitor who is going around his workplace like Quinky stuff up at high school. And who is played by an American actor like Jesse Plemons. Yeah. That's true. And what is this guy's name? I've, I've, I looked it up and I've forgotten. Guy Boyd. He's from Body Double. <laughs> is he really? Hmm. Who does he play? Detective Jim McLean. Uh, he must be that one detective who like interrogates uh, Craig Wasson uh, after the woman gets killed. Hmm. And I was thinking about rewatching Body Double uh, recently. There's like a new Blu-ray that got, or semi-new Blu-ray that got put out by uh, Indicator that I was thinking about buying. Um, so the janitor is not afforded a name, at least according to Wikipedia. No. Just just an old janitor in a school. Um, okay, now that we've uh, established that, Hugh, I think uh, what remains is for us to render our expert opinions about this film. Uh, mm-hmm. Would you like to? T- would you like me to tell you uh, a brief overview of my thoughts, or would you like to plunge into your opinion? Uh, let's start with you. Okay. Well, Hugh, uh, I think uh, my feelings for this film uh, can be best summarized uh, by a specific uh, note that I took in the middle of watching this. Okay. Now, I like to take notes during the movies you watch because you know my memory isn't that great. To be honest, especially I have trouble remembering like dialogue. It's always been a problem that I've had, you know. Just doesn't seem to stick in my mind that well. So I jotted down some few things. Uh, you know, I didn't really amount to much. I always seem to write more notes when a movie starts um, than you know towards the ending. I just I guess the drive to do so sort of uh, tails off as I get caught up in the story. Um, but scanning over my uh, page of notes, which are basically just. Uh, a bunch of uh, dotted uh, half sentences and um, random thoughts. Uh, I there is a, uh, a a phrase that strikes me. Um, well, in part because of the uh, extremity of the emotion expresses it expresses, uh, and also uh, the the fact that it just seems larger than the other notes on the page. And uh, I'm just gonna. Uh, <laughs> read this off to you and uh, I'll let you make uh, of it what you will, okay? Mm -hmm. So uh, I I think this uh, comes maybe uh, maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half to the movie. Uh, I seem to have written here uh, in the largest uh, font I think I could render uh, writing. I just have written a simple phrase which says, uh, let this be over, please. And then I have an exclamation mark. <laughs> and uh, I think that is a pretty good uh, summation of uh, how I felt about this particular film. Because you couldn't process the amount of euphoria the film was giving you? Is that, is that what it was? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was just, I felt so much joy that I was afraid I would... It's like the uh, entertainment and uh, infinite jest. You know, I was afraid that after I 
had uh, experienced this film, I'd be unable to do anything but watch it over and over again. So you liked it. <laughs> uh, what did you think? Okay, well, um, to take a similar tact, uh, I'll relay a little story about my experience watching this film. Mm. So, so while I was watching it, uh, it being I'm Thinking of Ending Things, directed by Charlie Kaufman, released on Netflix, while I was watching that film, I, I struggled with a decision. That decision was, should I go to the bathroom partway through, <laughs> right? Mm. And the reason that decision was a struggle, which, you know, on the surface, it doesn't seem like something I should struggle with, given I, I live in a small studio apartment and my toilet is not far away. I could just walk to the toilet, come back, pause the film, whatever. But the reason I struggled with that is I didn't want to find out how far through the film I was. <laughs> because whenever you're thinking like that, whenever you're thinking like, I wonder how far I'm, I am through this film, there's always more to go than you think there is, right? Yeah, yeah, but that, that's not really a illustrative thing. I feel like that happens with most movies. It does, you know, yeah. Whether you're enjoying them or not. Um, and I was just sitting there, like, hoping, thinking <laughs> maybe, despite the fact that I don't like this film at all, maybe time, <laughs> maybe time has flown by and it's about to wi- wind up. But I was, I was drinking tea and I really had to go to the bathroom, right? I had to press the pause button and, and see that Netflix progress bar pop up at the bottom of the screen. So I paused it, and there was a fucking full hour to go. (laughs) (laughs) We had the same experience, like, midway through this film, I think. I was like, Mm. Jesus Christ. Uh, I got to be honest to you. uh, We've watched some real shitty movies for this podcast. (laughs) Mm. But I think uh, the displeasure I felt while watching this particular film uh, is greater than pretty much anything else we've watched. Mm. It's definitely up there. Uh, I uh, I think a, a word that comes to mind when I think about this movie is is loathing. <laughs> mm. um, I really really hated this. I thought it was totally execrable. Uh, I basically didn't enjoy anything about it. Mm. Um, I I thought the I, we can get into the specifics, but you know uh, I feel like a lot of people have praised the performances in this, and even those I found to be. Uh, I mean, some of them are intentionally so, but uh, grading is the word that comes to mind. Mm. <laughs> and it really made me wonder why people cast like Tony Collette and David Thulis and things, uh, because they are two of the most irritating actors <laughs> uh, based on the sample size. Um, and I just uh, thought this movie was intolerable um, and I hated it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I really wished we had decided to do it. <laughs> is that is that a, a fair uh, assessment of? Do you think, that, do you think I've uh, expanded upon my opinion enough? Yeah, no, I think I think we're unfortunately in agreement. Unfortunately for the podcast. Mm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I I found this film to be tedious company. Is is how I'd put it. Mm. Rather like being trapped inside a car with an annoying partner I wanted to break up with on the way to meeting their parents for the first time. Or during the scenes uh, on the farmhouse, like being trapped inside an endless SNL sketch. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say SNL, but this uh, this reminded me a lot of um, the great uh, uh, Dan Aykroyd film, Nothing But Trouble. <laughs> mm. Which is a similar sense of tedious grotesquery. 
But it felt like it felt like a very particular type of SNL sketch that was like written at the last minute with with no def, definite premise in mind, where they just hoped it would get by on the performances, the kooky performances. Nope. To be to be a little bit more charitable than you, perhaps there are things like about this film that I can sort of at least theoretically get behind. Mm. Um, in terms of the performances. In as much as it was such a difficult character to really portray, I think Jessie Buckley does a solid enough job because she's, she's essentially playing a character with like little to no definition for the entire film, right? I, I agree with you in theory, but I think that the sort of character that she's playing like sort of undercuts any performance at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is not her fault at all. But no. It's, it's impossible to give a performance that is up to the level of, you know, what about this, like, wank fantasy, essentially, you know? Hmm. I, I, I agree with you. I filmed um, Tony Collette and uh, whatever that guy's name is. They were it's so David annoying. Bullis. I mean, they were supposed to be annoying, but it was, like, a different kind of annoying than I think the film was going for. It's kind of going for, like, sad annoying, but it was just annoying. Yeah. I feel like Tony Collette is one of those people who people on Twitter are like, oh, what a great actress. And I'm like... Everything that she's in, she sucks in. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I've honestly always had a problem with her performances. I mean, not so much in like her breakout roles, like Muriel's Wedding and stuff. She's pretty good in, but uh, but she was great in uh, what was that horror film that we watched that she's in? Hereditary. <laughs> the, no, the art one. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> what movie was that? Velvet Buzzsaw. That's it. There you go. She's very, very ticky. Hmm. You know, she likes her actorly ticks. Yeah, I think labored is a way is a, is a good way of putting it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, there's quite a few actors who fall into that category for me, uh, actually. Like uh, David Thewlis. Hmm. Yes, perfect couple. <laughs> I didn't. I, I. It was like really explainable to me why he was British. I know. Was he supposed to be like his stepdad or his actual dad? That wasn't clear to me. I don't know. But anyways, I don't understand how the genetic code of Tony Collette and David Thewlis equals Jesse Plimmons, so too. Because <laughs> they're both very, like, lanky, lean people. And, like, yeah. Jesse Plimmons is, like, a fine enough actor, but he's very stocky, you know? Yeah. I guess, like, with uh, um, Jesse Buckley, he was also, like, fine, I guess, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's kind of... It's just basically... It's kind of wasting Jesse Plemons Because I think he is, like, a capable performer and an interesting performer. But when he's yeah. just cast in the obvious role as, as like sort of a loser guy, <laughs> as a simp, <laughs> it feels like the casting is, has, has just put him into a, a kind of narrow box. I mean, the, the problem with this film is that both of the main characters, both Jesse Plemons and um, Jesse Buckley, the, Jesse Buckley, the characters that they're playing are just voids essentially. Yeah, and like, there's nothing to them necessarily. Like. I mean, it, it, and this is intentionally so in Jesse Buckley's case, but, you know, I think the film, if it were effective, you would feel something more for Jesse Plemons' character, right? Mm. Like a sort of a, a self-lacerating sympathy, right? That's what I think Coffin's going for. But, I mean, it just fails because he doesn't come across as anything but this, like, loser, like this just, like, generic loser. <laughs> so I think some of the small sort of unsettling moments that, Kaufman is trying to orchestrate. I think some of them are somewhat effective. I didn't. I, the only one that I found effective was when there is that just like random cut to the dad's like gross toenail. 
And I was like, oh, that's gross. But that was it. That none of the other, none of the atmosphere that he was going for. I think this is an undercut um, partially because of like the cinematography, which I thought was really flat. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I, and I mean, it just felt like standard, like Netflix, like digital widening, you know, like there is just, so the, I mean, you know, obviously there, there's a way to get a good texture out of digital photography, but it just, everything just felt very like flatly wet. Like, it looks so flat. And I, I had an issue as usual with the color grading. Yeah. It just seems so like drained of color, you know? Well, and yeah, the skin tones have grayscale in them, which is my pet peeve. And like, you know, for a film like this, you should feel the environment, right? Like that's what he's going for. He's trying to create this like oppressive like atmosphere. And I just feel like the film is, is a total failure at doing so because of, of this flatness, you know? I mean, I feel like to an extent, some of the scenes inside the vehicle where there's this blizzard raging outside and you can't really see the landscape because it's like pitch black. I feel like some of that coffin was going for a kind of semi-theatrical feeling. So not so much trying to evoke a real sense of place, but like that, a nightmare landscape. But it didn't. It didn't really. I mean, that that may be true, but the the way that it's like shot makes it feel like he's going for this, like you know, an attempt to render this like basically apocalyptic blizzard, right? Yeah. But it just comes across as so flat that it doesn't feel like that at all. It just feels like, you know, two actors sitting in a car with a bunch of like snow around them. Mm. You know, like I never felt the like. The, the feeling, I mean, which would come across in a theater set too, you know, but there is no like feeling of being like them being cut off at all. You know, it just felt like, it just felt like, you know, two actors sitting in a car. Like, you know, I feel like if, if this film had a, a heightened sense of, uh, if he had used a little bit more realism as, as opposed to just using this like flat, dull texture, it, it would have come across as, as feeling like more unsettling or more atmospheric, but and I think I think a problem is that the way that this film is edited too, it just feels like uh, uninteresting. And sometimes it just feels like it's cutting for no other reason than to cut. Did hmm. you get that impression too? Like I thought there were some shots that where they're when they're in the car that just for no reason like cuts to a shot of the outside of the car, like looking in, like snow going down. And I was like, why why include this? Like it feels like you're breaking out of the if you're trying to create this like claustrophobic atmosphere. Like you shouldn't cut outside of the car at all, you know? Mm. Um, so I thought it was kind of a, I mean, you, you know, we can attribute a lot of this, this film's failures to, to writing and narrative and to um, like the performances, but I also feel like it's just like really badly done on like a technical level too, you know? Yeah, I agree. I, th I think it really shows up Kaufman's limitations as a director in particular. Yeah, and we were talking a little bit before how we have appreciated his collaborations with Spike Jones a little bit more, and I think that's in part because you know Jones is a pretty—he's uh, someone who understands the language of film, you know, mm. and like the textures of film. Um, well, Kaufman—I mean, I haven't seen Seductive in New York, but so I will say that Kaufman's inexperience as a director kind of works in his favor in something like Synecdoche in New York because like insurmountable artistic ambition is like the film's theme so his ambitions that he can't quite uh, reach himself as a director I think actually maybe heighten that film uh, than, than it would if it was directed more capably perhaps but I think here he really shows how much you need to be a proper visual stylist to get this type of material across. Oh yeah, for sure. 
Because in his hands, it just feels so tedious and like, oh my God, there's no like dynamicism to the camera at all. I think the problem with a film like this, where the narrative is extremely limited and there are these, like, there, there are these deliberate obfuscations, it's basically an anti-narrative, right? Yeah. The, the substance lies in the execution, in how effectively it can generate this atmosphere how it can integrate its ideas in, in a satisfying way, even as it refuses to, like, nail down meaning, right? And I really don't think that Kaufman possesses the visual language or even the discipline to, to pull that off. Even just as a screenwriter, I think he has a tendency to overplay his hand, to over-talk, over-conceptualise, and write himself into corners. Yeah. And um, in this case, the result really makes you appreciate even David Lynch's weakest moments, I think. Yeah, for sure. Because at least with Lynch, like everything feels like it's coming from his deranged visual sensibilities, right? Yeah. Like there feels like, I mean, if not an intelligence, there's like a real artistry behind every image. Mm. But here it's just, it just feels so like flat and like barely functional, you know? But we can, we can talk about the problems of the screenplay too, but the thing that really like put me off this film was how like it, it was going for a sort of like, I mean, I don't know, it's almost like Straub Houlet or something like that, you know, where, you know, the first like uh, I mean, 30 minutes or to 45 minutes of this film are just like, it's basically just this one set of these two actors talking in a car. Hmm. But I mean, I think it would have been way more effective if like, you know, obviously, I mean, the, this film's like, you know, commercial or audience pleasing and sensibilities are already like off, you know, it's not like going for entertaining and entertainment, right? But I think it would have been effective if he had just, like, put the camera down and just had it be, like, one, like, like 45-minute, like, long shot, honestly. Mm. But, uh, you know, that's something that you can't really do in a, a semi-commercial film like this. But, like, I, I do... And some of this comes from the novel, and we'll get to the novel, but mm. I, don't mind, I, might, I don't mind some of the, like, areas that they mine tension and horror from to an extent whether it's effective or not is another question but the idea yeah i i agree that the the like um maybe not the premise but the the thieves that it's attempting to explore are interesting <laughs> in themselves but the general idea of like her predicament right where she's thinking of breaking up with this guy who's kind of a loser but she has to go on like this trip to his parents um farmhouse and also, like, she needs to work the next day and there's this blizzard and there's always anxiety around that. And it's always like, can we go now? And the time keeps shifting and it seems like a impossible goal to even just return home again. I, ke- I kept thinking in the second part of this movie that it would it would be much a much better film if it just played that premise, like, almost straight, you know? I agree. Like, if it was twisted more towards the normalcy of, of that situation, but still trying to draw out tension and anxiety and some horror from just that situation. Cause I think it's inherently kind of compelling. Yeah. And he, and he could include like the, the time stuff, but the, the uh, conclusion to this, I think is like a total disaster. I, I, I hated it. Even, even the bit um, where they're driving home and he keeps going on detours and he goes to his old high school to get rid of the ice cream cups or whatever. Mm. Just like the frustration of that from her perspective if it was more of, like you said, a straightforward story where you were on her side and she was an actual character as opposed to the metafictional stuff that it's playing with, 
I think that could have been really effective. It just isn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, but let's, yeah, let's talk about the story um, and the mm. source novel, which I looked up a uh, plot outline of. Is it is it different than the, the film? Well, so Kaufman alters the ending quite drastically. The, the ending of this, this film is terrible. Yeah. The ending of the novel is possibly even worse. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's, that's a surprise. So the, the novel tries to explain everything, right? Uh-huh. So you can kind of get at what the novel eventually explains in Kaufman's version, because I think it's, I think it's clear at some point that the re- actual relationship isn't really real and possibly it's all taking place inside Jake's head and he's invented it. And he's actually just a loser who has no girlfriend, right? He just, he's just an old loser janitor guy. Like, cause, cause there's, there's no other like, um, possible like reading of the janitor, like subplot or not even subplot, but the, just the sequences that are included in the film, if that's not what the film is about, you know? Yeah. So essentially that's what, that's what, when you're just watching the film cold and you have no knowledge of this, the source, that's what you get from it. The fact that, okay, something, yeah. something's odd. This relationship is breaking down. She's clearly not a real person, um, I, like most explicitly by the fact that we see like a, a book by Pauline Kale in his childhood bedroom, and then she like transforms into Pauline Kale. And there's other like things like like her name keeps on shifting. The name keeps changing. Yeah. The, the story of their meeting keeps changing. And and the paintings that she supposedly painted are just painted by some other guy. Yeah, their their relationship kind of just devolves to these like plagiarized talking points, essentially. Yeah. We get a whole uh, litany of uh, quoted authors, um, yeah. which, I mean, if this was like a Godard film, maybe I would be able to get behind it. But uh, in the context of this movie, it just felt so like just tiresome, I think. Yeah, it was exhausting. And then and then we finally meet up with this janitor. It turns into a musical. This is in the film version. <sighs> and then it just ends. Well, is it a protracted, it isn't a protracted, uh, a beautiful mind reference. Yeah. Which is not something that I caught. Uh, when I was watching it, because obviously who could possibly give a shit about a beautiful mind, you know? And and basically the implication is that the portions of the film that constitute the bulk of the, of the, the movie, with, you know, the two Jessies and the parents are a fantasy scene that this uh, loser janitor has played out in his mind about potentially meeting a girl. And then the suggestion, um, if you take the musical performance... Um, as any indication of something that's happened is that maybe the janitor did encounter a real life couple and killed one of them or something. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> is that what happens in the, in the, in the, yeah, the novel's sort of like that. So the novel, uh, maybe I should look at it more closely, but this is from memory. When I read the Wikipedia page, the novel is essentially the same setup mm. and the internal narration is from the woman's perspective. She's thinking of ending things. They're going to his parents' farmhouse. A lot of the same stuff happens where it's, it's weird at the farmhouse. They stop for ice cream on the way back. He goes to his old school. All that stuff happens. But um, the parallel narrative there, I think the janitor is maybe referred to along the way as well, but there's a parallel nar- narrative in the novel that's not in this one in which a couple of people are talking about like a violent incident at a school and you don't know what happens. And then eventually at the end, you realize that mm. there was a violent incident with this janitor. Maybe he killed a couple. I don't know. Maybe he killed himself. I can't remember. Something tragic happened. Um, and you realize that everything that you've been experiencing has been something he's invented. 
So he did have an experience at a trivia night where he saw a woman that he was attracted to, but nothing ever happened. And he's a writer, I think, in the book, and he decides to write the story of their meeting. So that's that's the metafictional element. Uh-huh. And then the reveal at the end is like, oh, it was all in the janitor's head, and he's an old, creepy, tragic guy. You know, that's essentially it. Possibly a murderer. But it's more like a twist reveal than what Kaufman goes for here. Mm. Yeah, it's like sort of this like pseudo-poetic, like, oh, look at this sad guy's life. Now it's, you know, I mean, you could sort of interpret the majority of the film as like this um, tragic projection of his stunted inner life, right? Yeah. And he's going for like a, I feel like he's, he's really going for sympathy for this, you know, character, right? But uh, yeah, he, he just comes across as such a loser that I was like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> it's kind of like the incel biopic to some degree, right? Yeah, I, I thought the same. But I, I thought I thought the film was was at least somewhat aware of being critical of his like male entitlement incel kind of nature. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But I mean, it felt it felt like mostly lip service to me to a degree, mm. right? Because at the end of the day, he's not really concerned at all about any of the female characters in her lives, right? And the points of the film that sort of like push against his point of view are like, I mean, obviously you can have sympathy for someone who's a misogynist. I would never suggest that. Like plenty of my favorite films are like about like misogynist, you know, hmm. I think it's something like taxi driver. Right. I don't know. Like I, I just, I, at the end of the day, I'm just like, I don't really care. Like, I just don't care about the, the, the person who is the, at the center of this film, you know, hmm. and there's nothing about his archetype. And I think that, it's it's like almost like a condescension that comes into it from what I feel is like Coffin's point of view, right? Hmm. Did you did you feel a, a similar way? I wasn't listening. <laughs> Can you say that again? Oh, did you feel like this like sort of like condescending attitude at the end of the day? Oh yeah. So so I think a good example of that is you know the way that the characters kind of devolve into talking points, as I said. But she, there's also like a sequence in which she talks about, she criticizes the fact that um, Jake um, sings or makes a reference to that baby it's cold outside thing. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that there was like controversy around that song in the Me Too era. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> that, that, part was, that part drove me insane. I was like, I, I just, I, I, you know, I feel like I've heard so much fucky shit about that song. And who, who cares? Who cares? Oh, my God. But that sounded like Kaufman grinding his axe about that type, that style of discourse. And that seems to be in keeping with the type of thing that he's attempted in his novel mm. that got released recently. Which looks, it sounded terrible. It sounded absolutely awful. Imagine reading. It's like a 700-page like tone. Yeah, it's like 800 pages or something like that. Not to do too much backseat filmmaking in our criticism, but... Mm. This would have been effective if it was just utilizing the the nature of the circumstance, yeah, and and drawing out the existential horror of that situation without having to resort to these kind of gimmicky, metatextual, metafictional tricks. I I am in agreement with that, and I, again, I just like find I think this film's relationship to filmmaking in general I thought really was really irritating. 
Because there's that like weird Robert Zemeckis joke. Yeah, what, what was the deal with that? I did not understand that at all. Because like you know when you watch the the sequence of the fake film, I think I think the implication is supposed to be like the reason that this like dumb loser janitor has all these delusions is because he, he watched too many movies. <laughs> I mean that that fits in with like the beautiful mind ending, right? Mm-hmm. The film that we watch, like the film within the film, is like this like really generic CD like rom com, right? Mm. But that's not what fucking Robert Zemeckis tracks like. That was the the, th- the thing that was strange to me. I was like, that doesn't seem. I know it's like a schmaltzy like Hollywood style thing, but that doesn't seem like Robert Zemeckis particularly. Like he's never has he ever directed a romantic film at all? He's like, much more high concept than that. Yeah, he mostly makes like weird fantasy films for the yeah. most part. So I thought that was I thought that was really off, and I think that just the way this film seems to view or just to take like you know I mean it really seems to to <laughs> be critical of anyone who spends too much time watching movies, which like fine, but like why do you have to you're couching it in this sort of like you know someone who's of like a lower socioeconomic status than Charlie Kaufman is, right? Hmm. And obviously, I think you're supposed to take this character as, as a somewhat of a self-insert. You know, I'm sure that there's a lot of like concerns of coffins that went into this, right? Yeah, about aging and stuff. But I, I thought it was really like kind of offensive the way it just treated this like I don't know person's desires. It is, <laughs> and the way it treated like farm life too. I just thought it was like it just felt so like. Um, not to get too like uh, a Trumpy on this, but it just felt so like coastal elite, you know, like, you know, <laughs> just this like asshole who, you know, lives in California or New York, just like sneering at all these losers who live in the middle of the country who, I, I mean. And like, it's a, do we, do we really need to reinforce the creepy old janitor trope? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, you know, I, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, Char- Charlie Coffin, but a janitor's, like, work means more to the world than yours does. <laughs> but, yeah, I just thought, I thought the film, I mean, I just think there's, like, a hair. I mean, you know, there's a lot of classism in Hollywood in general, obviously. Mm. Um, but I thought the way the film sort of was uh, very denigrating towards the fantasy life of, like, you know, poor people I thought was pretty offensive, which is not something I've seen like anyone talk about at all. Hmm. And just, again, I just felt this very like snobbish attitude towards, you know, anyone who might enjoy blockbuster films pretty much, hmm. you know, whatever, criticize anything you want, but I don't know. I just thought that the way this film was like, oh, look at this, this pathetic freak. Like I just, I, it really rubbed me the wrong way. Hmm. Um, and, uh, if I didn't hate it for being just up its own ass so much, I would hate it for that reason. I mean, I guess I could hate it for both. <laughs> so, um, I, I, I thought this film was incredibly unpleasant. And I, I honestly think it's like, uh, the widespreadness of his critical appreciation is like totally baffling to me. Like, I thought this film was like disastrous, you know? <laughs> I can understand someone liking it more than I did. But yeah. I can't understand someone thinking this is like a great film. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if I have any other vile uh, nah. dispute about it. <laughs> another uh, another notch on the Project <laughs> the, the Plus hit list, am I right? <laughs> you should go back to letting Spike Jones direct his shitty screenplays. <laughs> yeah. 
Because I mean, you know, I think I think uh, from from my point of view, the best movie that he was associated with is adaptation, and that film is its own like annoying metatextual things. But I think that unlike uh, Coffin's, I mean, I, you know, not I'm not gonna say his directorial efforts in general, but at least as evident by this film. Like there's something about Spike Jones's like uh, humanism, I think that comes through in both being John Malkovich and uh, adaptation that sort of tippers the like raw, uh, cynical, I don't know, like hatred that Coffin seems to feel about humanity. Yeah, although I will say that um, I quite like the bleakness of something like An- Anomalisa. Mm. I mean, that did have a co-director as well because it was uh, co-directed with a puppeteer or something, wasn't it? Mm. But um, yeah, I like the sort of unremitting bleakness of that film. I don't think it's a perfect film, but I, I actually appreciated that particular quality about it. Mm. And um, I, I think that he's actually, when he, at least when he's working on his own or without someone like Spike Jones, he's better when he sticks to a more straightforward, less gimmick-based premise. Yeah, but I mean, it's not like he's worked that much alone, you know? No. <laughs> I guess, like, sort of the other film that we haven't talked about, I mean, in part because I haven't seen it since I was, like, 12, is, uh, what's it called, the Jim Carrey one? Eternal Sunshine. Eternal Sunshine yeah. of the Sunshine. I think like that's a film that I'd probably, like, loathe if I watched it now. <laughs> I never liked it at the time, so I don't think I'll like it now. But that's that's an example of, like, Gondry's kind of whimsical impulses making the the formula a different kind of noxious. Mm, yeah. I, was, I think Spike Jones is just a better storyteller than anyone else who's worked with. Yeah, and I, again, I think, he, I think he has a better, like, visual sense, too. And, and again, like I said, like, I think that there's a real affection that comes through in Spike Jones's like, camera work and the way that he films, like, people's bodies. Yeah. Um, that makes... Again, like adaptation to be John Malkovich, like way more platable than than this was for me. Mm. Um, not that I'm like a huge fan of Spike Jones, but I do think that their two collaborations are pretty good. Yeah, I agree. actually, yeah, it's fu- it's funny. I think I think that they should go back to working with each other, honestly, because uh, I mean, her sucks. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, and I never saw where the wild things are. So me either. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say, or are we gonna move on to our uh, bonus features for this week? Let's move on. Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus, bonus features. So let's see. Uh, I watched three Godzilla films: uh, Godzilla vs. Mothra, Jesus Godzilla vs. No time has passed whatsoever. I'm, I'm, go- I'm going through. I'm going fast. Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. Too. No, no. I mean, like, it's just funny to me that after like all this time and all these Godzilla films that you've already gone through, like we resume after so many months, and you're like, so I watched three Godzilla films. Dude, there's like 50 of them. I'm gonna watch all of them. All right, all right, fine. Sorry, sorry. Go. Uh, all right, so uh, before I was really interrupted, I watched Godzilla vs. Mothra, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2, and Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla. Of those three, Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla is really boring. And uh, both Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2 and Godzilla vs. Mothra, um, I think, are worth watching. Uh, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2 has this great moment where... Um, 
the baby Godzilla, after that he's separated from uh, its human mother, uh, lets out this single tear that goes on its cheek. And I thought that was really funny. Um, so that's Godzilla Corner for this week. Uh, I watched a number of Stephen Chow films. <laughs> mm. I watched uh, Love on Delivery, which you uh, talked about previously, and which I will contribute only the following, and that is it, it is an exquisite comedy. That it is. Um, and I think, uh, at least of the films that I've watched, my favorite of the movies that he's directed and or starred in, uh, I watched the Wong Jing film Tricky Brains, which he stars in, which isn't great, but uh, has uh, just some great like garbage in it. <laughs> Uh, and that's a film where Stephen Chow plays like a, a trick expert, basically. And mm-hmm. it's just an excuse for all these like zany traps and stuff to come out. Uh, and it's pretty funny. I, I definitely enjoyed watching it. And then I watched two of his other directorial efforts. I watched From Beijing with Love, um, which I enjoyed enough, but I have to say it was a little disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like there's a very specific image that comes to my mind when I hear like Stephen Chow Bond parody. And uh, I got to say, this film, for the first, like, 30 minutes, pretty wide on jokes. Which <laughs> mm. is kind of a shame. Uh, but it does have some really funny stuff in it. Uh, so I think if you're a fan of Chow, like I and you are, uh, it's worth a watch. But um, it's, it's so strange because Love on Delivery uh, shows so much, like, style and, and, like, personality, you know, and it's filmmaking. And it's kind of absent in... Uh, from Beijing with Love. And I feel like it's especially odd considering that is the next filming director, which I also watched this week, Forbidden City Cop, is chock full of that same like frenetic style, and which I also thought was hilarious and a total joy. So <laughs> that's a three or four Stephen Chow films. Uh, you know, if you're going to watch any of them, watch Love on Delivery and Forbidden City Cop, which are both delightful. Hmm. Um, I watched the uh, Johnny Toe film uh, A Hero Never Dies, which is this sort of like uh, pseudo parody of uh, like John Woo heroic action films that builds to this ridiculous yet sublime and somewhat moving climax that really amps up the uh, homoeroticism that's inherent in that genre um, and I think is just really terrific it has this like great just feel and texture it is really funny so uh, I highly recommend that uh, I watched the Ingmar Bergman film Alru of the Wolf which I mm. think um, is pretty similar to uh, Persona in both its like weird sort of horror inflected tone and also sort of its preoccupations with um, uh, fragmented identity. Uh, I don't think it's quite as good as Persona, which, you know, I mean, is one of like Bergman's absolute best, but I do think it has some indelible atmosphere. And unlike uh, I'm Thinking of Anything, it really nails this very claustrophobic and sort of fraught um, atmosphere that comes with me, like totally separated from humanity. Uh, I watched one of your favorite films of all time, which is called The Apartment, Mm -hmm. uh, which I don't have anything original to say, but I did think was very funny and very moving. So there you go. I don't know if you want to jump in there. It's good. (laughs) Good movie. (laughs) Uh, I rewatched, or I watched two, or I, I guess I watched three John Carpenter films, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I rewatched his Escape from Duology, uh, 
both Escape from New York and Escape from L.A., which are both uh, great, <laughs> you know, both in uh, Escape from New York's like lean seriousness of purpose and sort of uh, almost dreamlike sci-fi mood. And then Escape from L.A.'s extremely goofy, um, almost parody of the first film, which is hmm. <laughs> good stuff. Uh, and then I watched uh, one of the big carpenters I hadn't seen, which is Big Trouble in Little China, which I thought was excellent and feels almost like a perfect distillation of the blockbuster film. Um, just hilarious and punchy and uh, self-aware without puncturing its own reality. Mm. Uh, and I think uh, I think actually Big Trouble in Little China might be my favorite uh, of the carpenter um um, Russell collaborations just in terms of Russell's performance because I think he is perfectly suited to play this like brash uh, idiot American character and I think he's really funny yeah he's very good in it yeah and I just love the all the performances that he gets out of this like just beautiful litany of Chinese American character actors mm. um, I think um, uh, Victor Wong who plays uh, Egg Shun is especially good and also, I think that uh, I was very taken by um, uh, uh, James Hong, you know, who's been in like a million movies, but he wins this great uh, aura of uh, uh, diabolical wickedness to the film's uh, villainous character, which uh, otherwise I think would be uh, absent if played by a lesser actor than him. Mm. Um, so I think uh, Big Trouble in Little China is very good. <laughs> Um, and then I rewatched The Silence of the Lambs, which I think remains this very um, haunting and um, humanistic to a scary degree film. Uh, and I, I don't know, I'm a big fan of that one. And uh, I think I watched one other film, which is uh, I watched a film called The Suitor by Pierre Etou. Um, I think I talked about one of his other films. Yes, you did. A couple weeks ago, uh, but this is his feature-length debut, uh, mm. and it is extremely funny, um, and I think that you especially would like it. It's about this, like, uh, it's basically, it's, it almost feels like a sketch movie to some degree, but it's basically about this um, kind of loser who's given the, a command by his father to find a bride, and then he basically just gets involved in all these romantic hijinks um, that are uh, very funny, and... Uh, I highly recommend it, especially if you enjoy sort of a droll, like, um, you know, I think Pierre A2 gets compared to Keaton a lot. And I think that comparison is apt. It's, it's like very, I mean, he has a very similar sort of um, persona of non-reaction to the ridiculous things around him. Right. So, and that, my friend, is everything I watched. Wow. Um, okay. My turn. My turn. My turn. Yeah, let's hear it. Uh, the first film I watched um, after recording the last episode of this podcast was a little film called <laughs> Little Italy. You fucking take my bit, bro. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hayden Christensen, romantic comedy. Hayden Christensen, um, other people, romantic comedy. <laughs> Rachel, no, uh, Emma Roberts. Yes, that's the one. Um, and suffice to say... It is a perfect film. I don't want to say anything about this because I still think you should watch it. Mm. Yeah, I'll think about it. So, what, what did I watch next? So, um, I 
I indirectly inherited a stack of Hong Kong martial arts films. Mm. And I was, I was delighted to discover that they were not, as they appeared, DVDs. Mm. But an altogether superior format, VCDs. <laughs> do you remember VCDs? Uh, I do. It's like a CD, right? Were you even alive when people had VCDs? No, but uh, I read that book about Hong Kong cinema that I told you about, the Portwell book, and he talks about like how VCDs sort of uh, were an early method of pirating films. So. Yes. These are like official VCDs, though, which is funny. That is funny. So it comes in essentially a DVD case with two CD-ROMs inside. <laughs> oh, my God. Because they can only fit 700 megabytes of data per disc or whatever CDs are. Oh, so they have yeah, to split like all nothing. the films over two discs. So it's like a laser disc, but like the shittiest quality. The resolution must be so bad. The resolution is terrible. <laughs> but somehow that's it feels like it's part of the experience with these old Hong Kong martial arts films because that's how kind of I grew up watching them. That's for you, definitely. On VHS and like on sort of low quality transfers on um, right, free-to-air right. television and stuff. So like, yeah, there's always, there's always, it's never pristine quality when I think of Hong Kong martial arts films, even though if you watch one now, it usually will be. That's, that's how I don't really get bothered when I watch like, uh, something like Tricky Brains, which is like, you know, standard definition. It has like, is very poorly translated. Like, I feel like that's part of the experience of watching it, you know? Yeah. I definitely don't subscribe to dubs, but I'm more than happy with a bad translation in the subtitles. Mm. Um, yeah, so if you're, especially for something that's so trashy as uh, Tricky Brains, as you know. Yeah. Um, so the first one I watched was Executioners from Shaolin, um, mm. uh, which is a, a La, uh, Lao Ka Lung film from 1977. Mm-hmm. And it's great fun in the old Shaw Brothers tradition. Uh, it's perhaps most notable for featuring an antagonist who can grip things with his balls. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, but it's an all-round good time in general. The action scenes are, are well-staged, um, as, as well, like how long tends to be when he stages uh, action scenes. And there's an enjoyable romantic comedy kind of wedged into the middle of the proceedings. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely recommended. I, I then watched another of the, these films I had on BCD, uh, this time The Five Venoms, uh, which I think I'd seen before, but I hadn't really watched it properly. Who directed um, that? Uh, Cheng Che. Oh, right. He's probably the most famous of the Shaw Brother directors, maybe. Is he the one who, like, mutilates his characters? I mean, he's quite violent. I haven't seen that many of his films, or at least I I can't really separate what I have and haven't seen these days Mm. to give a much of an impression of him beyond this film. Um, Mm -hmm. As I said, I think I've seen it before, but never properly... And I was watching this on the VCD version until I realized it was on Netflix. And I was like, I, I probably should just watch the proper Netflix version. So, <laughs> as, as fun it is to watch a shitty old VCD, it's really nice to see the sets and stuff that the Shaw Brothers studio yeah. would utilize and the costumes. Yeah, I feel like a lot of like, you know, Hong Kong Golden Age films like uh, hold up to having pristine transfers of them, you know? Mm. It's not like some like low budget films where. Like you say, like the part of the enjoyment is like not being able to process the image entirely correctly. And you kind of like ruin the effect when you yeah. totally clean it up. But uh, at least for the films that I've seen, I think that um, their appealing qualities are still. Uh, yeah, and I think that's definitely uh, the case with any through. of these Shaw Brothers films. They clean up really well, and the sets are always great. So, 
it's nice to see them properly. Yeah, I mean, it's just I, I think that I think that uh, you know there's like a pretty high level of like technical um, not perfectionism, but just competence that was involved in making them. So, which sort of goes cuts against the grade of how they're perceived in general culture. I think. Yeah. So this is considered like a Shaw Brothers classic, mm. maybe partly because of the Wu Tang Clan. Um, mm. But I actually think its status is somewhat undeserved. Mm. It's it's inarguably iconic. The I and the, the central idea of the film and the characters of the five Venoms is compelling. But I found the action scenes pretty sluggish, even accounting for the relatively sluggish style of the day mm-hmm. um, compared to what happened from the 80s onwards. Um, and... The violence I found kind of incongruously sadistic in places, mm. even as it is kind of like comical with that like bright red blood, mm. it was still kind of unpleasant and that didn't really fit the tone of the film very successfully for me. Mm. And I, I think people praise this because it kind of plays out like a detective story, but right. it plays out like a shitty and dumb detective story, so <laughs> who cares? <laughs> It is, it right. is definitely worth watching, but I, I think more for the, the costumes and the sets and its iconic status. You don't, you don't think it's quite equal to its no. reputation, though? Right. You can what do far better, I think, for this type of film. Next one I watched was Starstruck from 1982, directed by Gillian Armstrong. I'd previously spoken about her feature, uh, My Brilliant Career. Mm. So this is a very enjoyable jukebox musical about a wannabe uh, starlet named Jackie and her cousin Angus. And um, I think the strength of the film is that Armstrong cast two non-actors for these roles. And um, Mm -hmm. it's kind of their charm and their naturalistic performances, which really makes the film work. The music comes courtesy of a flash in the pan uh, New Zealand pop group called The Swingers, uh, led by Phil Judd of pre-fame Split Ends fame. And um, honestly, their presence in the film makes it somewhat bittersweet for me because I was a fan of of Phil Judd's music back in the day Um, until, that is, the day that I came across the headline, I stalked the girls, and it kind of took the shine off it a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that'll do that. Um, yeah, I mean, you can you can you can uh, imagine what sort of business he got caught up with um, <laughs> to be involved yep. in an article under that headline, um, and yep. you can look, 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 look that up if you like. But um, the music is great, I will say, especially the title track that uh, he wrote specifically for the film. Mm. So it does it does contribute to the experience. But there you go. Um, I also watched Forbidden City Cop. Mm. Um, for my money, it's it's a contender for Stephen Chow's best film. It's just purely enjoyable start to finish yeah i thought it was a couple here short of uh i think love of delivery is still my favorite of his films that i've seen but uh, i i would need to like reassess the rest of his catalog including the ones i'd already seen to really make that call but uh, it's, it's definitely a highly enjoyable experience and i didn't really have any problems with it so just i really love the sequence that intercuts his and his wife's journey to the uh, gum kingdom with uh the emperor's bodyguards getting like fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> that was really funny. <laughs> Did you? I, I, it must have been interesting for you because you had watched um, 
from Beijing with love prior to this, right? Mm. Yeah. And you already, you had already told me about the bond parody that opens it. The f- yeah. The fact that it, it, it includes elements of sort of incongruous bond parodies that really don't need to be there. Yeah. I thought that was, I thought that was really strange. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't even make sense for the character whatsoever. Who's like an inventor or something. Well, I mean, but it, he's like a special agent, right? So yeah, I guess so. And, um, I just think that Bond films are really ubiquitous in Hong Kong. That's the feeling that I get from watching both of these films, you know? Mm. Um, I watched a film that you have seen and liked and maybe talked about on the podcast before, Her Smell. Mm. Mm. Yes. The Alex Ross Perry film. Mm. I I didn't think it was entirely successful, but I did enjoy it. Um, I will say that I was annoyed by the fact that um, it was clear that the Perry wanted Elizabeth Moth to actually play guitar in the film. Mm. And there are definite sequences, especially the solo sequences where she is literally playing the sound you hear, mm-hmm. but she comes across as someone who learned to play guitar like the previous weekend, not someone who plays guitar in an actual band that was professional. No, um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't notice that quality, but then again, I'm not really... The musicians, so. but it's certainly better than like the the one that annoys me the most when they portray like musicians in films is where they don't even mime the chords; they just like put mm. their hand randomly on the guitar and like different sounds come out. Mm. But anyway, yeah. But yeah, it was enjoyable. And uh, wait, good wait, movie. What did I watch? A bunch of other stuff. Um, a thousand clowns. What? Uh, just some fucking silent movie you could have. It's not silent movie. It's from 1965. Um, it's uh, based on a play, and the, yeah. the screenplay of the film is written by the same playwright, and actually directed by the guy who directed the play as well, I think. And I think the main actor was also in the play, so it's an adaptation of a play. There you go. Um, Why did you watch it? I enjoyed it. What? Why did you watch it? Oh, I heard someone recommend it, so. Yeah. Okay. And then I saw it was available in a pristine transfer on YouTube. So I was like, oh, watch this. I can't be bothered talking about it though. Good. Um, I watched a bunch of, uh, and by a bunch, I mean three films by the backup Woody Allen, the untarnished uh, Albert Brooks. (laughs) I feel like uh, Albert Brooks is probably better than Woody Allen at this point. Morally, certainly. Because I feel like um, Albert Brooks' reputation is making like, well, he's directed like six films. They're all like beautiful, polished gems, as opposed to like Woody Allen's like sprawling catalog of garbage. Well, I mean, um, his his last film, uh, Finding Comedy in the Muslim World, wasn't exactly well received. I've, I've heard good things about it, though. Have you actually? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I haven't seen it. But um, I watched. So previous previous to this, I'd spoken about on the podcast the fact that I'd seen Modern Romance and enjoyed that. Um, mm. so I watched a few more of his films, his first film, Real Life. Mm, I've always wanted to watch that. It gets credit for being prescient about, you know, the reality television boom. Well, it's a, it's a parody of a series that was already on the air. Yeah, I know. That's why, that's why that doesn't really hold water for it to be like this really forward thing yeah. of comedy when it's a specific parody of like a documentary from the early seventies. Yeah. <laughs> so. Which, which probably, which actually was like forward thinking. You know? Yeah. It's called real. I think it's. I think that show is just called Real Life. Too. No, it's called like The American Family or something. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. 
Um, I've seen part of that film, but I, I can't remember its name apparently. And, and it's an enjoyable film. It doesn't entirely come off, and it, it clearly runs out of steam by the end. Mm. Um, but it otherwise holds up pretty well. Um, it, he definitely improved as he went along. Mm. So his third film, uh, Lost in America, uh, I would highly recommend. Uh, it's like an enjoyable tale of a couple of um, yuppies who, who quit their jobs and take to the road. Mm. And um, I like the register that his films operate under. It's not quite like, it's not like oddball comedic or out there or dramatic. It kind of has this low-key energy. Mm. If you get on the wavelength, they're quite enjoyable. And Lost in America, I think, is one of his more successful efforts. Gotcha. Um, and I watched Defending Your Life. Mm -hmm. Some of it felt a little bit listless to me. And the central relationship between Albert Brooks's character and Meryl Streep's character in The Afterlife isn't especially convincing. Mm. But everything else about the film I liked. And I liked the way it ended and how it operates as a conventional romance to some degree as well. But mm -hmm. yeah, not, not his best work. And uh, lastly, I watched a film called The Chills, Colon, The Triumph and Tragedy of Martin Phillips. Ew. So The Chills are a New Zealand uh, group, band, who were moderately, moderately successful in their day. And Martin Phillips is the only constant member of the band. Uh -huh. uh, they've gone through a lot of iterations over the years. There's been like 30 people who have been in the chills, aside from him. Um, so I watched, I watched this documentary shortly before I was about to resume my old drinking habits after a few dry weeks mm. that we both shared. <laughs> and... Yes. Um, and I, I turn on this documentary and the opening scene is Martin Phillips being told by his doctor that his liver is 80% non-functional and he could die within six months. <laughs> I was like, oh boy. This is <laughs> gonna, was it a taste for alcoholism to you? So their heyday, they, were, they started in like 1982. They were part of that mm. uh, flying nun scene in New Zealand in Dunedin. And the film was, was done only a couple of years ago. So it's like him in the present day. And then it will it'll flash back from there. And we see him now sorting through like his collection of junk in his house, like all these records and books and films and little toys that he's like obsessively accumulated. Mm. And he, he observes ruefully at one point that he thought he would have a family um, at this stage in his life and kids who eventually inherit his collection. Um, but that hasn't panned out. So he's just kind of trying to get rid of the stuff and, organized this exhibition of his work and stuff like that. Mm. And he's just this like graying, overweight guy living alone, surrounded by stuff with like nothing else in his life but his music. And I thought like I was, <laughs> I was gazing into my future except without the past success. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then as the story develops, we learn that it wasn't solely down to alcohol abuse that um, his liver is so fucked up. So it turns out he was previously a heroin addict. Then he was on like a methadone program to try and kick that habit. And um, at one point we see him as he's sorting through his stuff. He takes, at this point in his life, he's no longer a, a drug addict. But he takes this old um, drug kit from a, a storage cupboard. And we see all this stuff. It's all neatly arranged. 
like the needles, the tubes, the cotton or whatever in these little containers. Mm. And the containers like inside are like Star Wars themed satchel. <laughs> oh <my laughs> like a God. goofy picture of Darth Vader on the front. <laughs> That's embarrassing. Um, and we learned that he, he injected so much um, at one point or across, across the period in which he was taking that there's like no blood circulation in parts of his body. And you see like a doctor trying to find a vein um, <laughs> to to inject, to get a blood sample from his like swollen fingers. And it's pretty gross. And then we learn more about um, his health problems. And it turns out that at a, a certain point um, when he, he was taking heroin or methadone and he had like another junkie come over to his house to shoot up together. And at one point he sticks his hand in, in, inside the junkie's paper bag and he feels like a needle prick. Mm-hmm. So he starts, he starts sucking the blood from his finger and he asks the guy, hey, do you have anything? And the guy's like, oh, yeah, I've got hepatitis C, but it doesn't do anything to me, so it's fine. <laughs> and <laughs> the guy happened to be someone who, uh, I, think, I think it's the minority of people who get hepatitis fall into this category, someone who's just a carrier but who exhibits no real symptoms. Right. And that didn't prove to be the case with Martin Phillips. He got hepatitis C. And, and it was the combination of, of, of that and the alcohol abuse and possible bug and drug abuse that, you know, fucked up his liver. So by the end, I was like, oh, well, I don't have hepatitis C, so I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> not, not yet. <laughs> it's, this is good, so I'll be fine. Um, not yet. It's a, it's a fairly standard documentary, but I think because of how kind of unsparing it is and how revealing it is about its subject matter, it's quite compelling. Um, certainly more compelling than a lot of similar rock documentaries. Mm. I like the chills. The chills are good. All right. Well, I'm going to hit the stop button. So uh, this is Hunter Sawyer signing off. Goodbye. This is me. Goodbye. Oh.